This morning I want to start uh, just a little bit different. And so if you have a Bible, open to John chapter 12. Um, I want to kind of follow up to something we started talking about last week at the end of the message. And uh, it was something that um, in our closing time, uh, I talked about the fact that the only way that we can really truly live in a non-hypocritical way is to understand that we need to die to live. And uh, all week, I couldn't get away from that thought, couldn't away from that idea. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about that death actually brings life. That death brings life. And uh, Laura's song there at the end was just so powerful because I don't know about you, I felt that way. You ever feel that way when you feel like the voices in your head and the voices around you are telling you one thing, but you get in God's word and it tells you something else? And you have that battle of who you're going to believe? I, maybe I'm talking to the wrong group, but I know I've had that situation before. I know I've had that where I've, I've been in God's word and he'll say things like, you're my beloved. You're my son. I've chosen you. I've made you alive. I've sacrificed for you. I have a purpose for you and a plan for you. I read those things and I think, God, that must be talking about somebody else. That must be my neighbor. That must be somebody else at church. That must be the people that sing on stage. That must be those people because that can't be me. And I've said it before, guys, when, when I was called in the ministry, I was only saved for about six months. I didn't grow up in church. I didn't know anything about this book, Save Jesus Christ, that he saved us. And I remember when I went to the previous pastor, Pastor Tom, and said, I think God wants me to go into full-time ministry. I have no idea what that looks like. I'm terrified. I'm so scared. I don't know what to do. I'm not, I'm not ready for this. I'm not, I'm not the kind of guy that God calls. And it was over time that God started showing me, you need to believe me and not just what you hear around you or hear in your own head. Truth. We said this a few months ago. Truth always has to outweigh emotion. Emotion can follow truth, but truth has to lead emotion. We feel a lot of things that may be good or may be bad. One of the worst pieces of advice that I've heard in youth ministry, all the, all the years I did youth ministry, was just follow your heart. Follow your heart. Let me tell you, as a pastor, there is no worse advice you'll ever get than follow your heart. Because your sinful heart will lead you astray. We don't follow our heart. We follow Jesus Christ. And then we allow him to what? Change our heart and our desires. And now our heart and our mind and our desires are in agreement with his word. And now we follow those things. But man, we can get really messed up if we listen to the voices around us. What Laura just saying was so true. We got to believe his word. So how do we live a life where we're not falling victim to all these other voices and these things around us? How do we live a life where we're not falling victim to hypocrisy? Well, I believe Jesus showed us the key, and it's in death. John chapter 12, look at verse 23. John chapter 12 and verse 23. And Jesus answered them saying, this is a group of Greeks that have come to find out if Jesus is really who he says he is. When you read the passage above that, I love that they go to Philip, Philip being one of the disciples. And Philip was kind of like the bean counter of the disciples. He was the one that was most likely over logistics. Uh, we see this when they were, had all these people in the wilderness and they wanted to feed them. Jesus looks at Philip and says, how are we going to do it? So by the way, if you've got to feed 5,000 people and you don't have enough money to buy food for two people, you don't want the job of logistics. 
I don't want to go to Jesus and be like, look, maybe you overestimated, underestimated. I don't know, but we can't feed him. But Philip, these Greeks come to Philip and they ask him, who is Jesus? and want to see Jesus and be taken to Jesus. And then it says that Philip went to Andrew. And I love this because you know what Andrew's known for? He's not known for much. But to be honest, he was the reason Peter came to the Lord. This is Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Andrew and John were the first two followers of Christ. Get this now. They were followers of John the Baptist out in the wilderness, and Jesus comes and is baptized, and John declares, John the Baptist declares, this is the Messiah. So John and Andrew said, sorry, John the Baptist, we're following the Messiah. And that's okay with John the Baptist, because what did he say about Jesus? I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. Uh, I'm not the Messiah. He's the Messiah. So, so Andrew and John, John is the brother of James. We read about them. They're called the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. So John and Andrew begin following Jesus. But when we read the pages of Scripture, Andrew's brother Peter gets a lot more of the attention. He kind of becomes a spokesman for the disciples. But here we see Philip, he doesn't go to Peter. Philip doesn't go to anyone else. Philip goes to Andrew because Andrew's known for one thing. We did a study on this as a men's Bible study a couple years ago. Andrew's known for one thing. It's taking people to Jesus. That's what he's known for. Uh, What do you want your testimony to be? I would love for my testimony to be that I took people to Jesus. And isn't that a great testimony? Remember the boy that had the lunch, that he gave the lunch so they could feed the 5,000? Andrew was the one that brought him to Jesus. And here we see Andrew again. Philip goes to Andrew and says, hey, I don't know what to do. These guys want to see Jesus. What should we do? So what does Andrew do? He says, okay, let's take him to Jesus. So he takes him to Jesus. Verse 23 again. And Jesus answered them, the Grecians, the Greeks, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily. Verily, verily means just kind of like amen at the beginning. And I've said this all the time, but I want to make sure we understand Scripture. Amen means so let it be. Right? We read a verse and it'll say amen at the end. That's God's way of saying, now go do this. Okay? Verily, verily is kind of like that attention grabber. It's like saying, listen, listen. What I'm going to tell you is truth. And you need to hear it. So he says it twice because he was talking to most likely men. And men need to hear everything twice, right? Three times for Steve. Okay, three times. I've always said this, but it's true. Look at when God spoke to man. He always said their name often twice, right? Abraham, Abraham, Samuel, Samuel, okay? Women, he says their name once because women listen the first time, okay? That's why when I said John chapter 12, verse 23, there were some men in the room that looked at their wife and said, what did he say? Where are we going? Can you show me where to go? Okay. okay, if you're sitting next to a deacon, just help them. They'll get there. Okay, they'll figure it out. Just kidding. Um, verse 24. Verily, verily. Listen, listen. So what's the message Christ is going to say? And here's the thing I want to remind you about real quick in church. Man, we can get so tempted to do this. I've done this. We just kind of fall into the routine. But I believe that when God's word is opened and we read it, it's actually alive. This isn't a dead word. This is a live and active word. And it wants to speak to you. Not in some mystical, new age kind of way. No, no, no. The Holy Spirit of God, the author of this book, who also indwells you if you're in Christ, wants to illuminate your mind to these things. And so if we just read these words and just read them and not really allow us to engage them, we miss it. Verily, verily, listen, listen. I say unto you, Except the corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. 
But if it die, it brings forth much fruit. Man, what in the world is Jesus talking about here? Why did he transition to talking about farming and and planting a seed and all of this? What did he just say? He just said, listen, the son of man, that's another name for Jesus Christ, for the Messiah, must be glorified. That time has come. And then he references a corn of wheat or a seed. And he says, listen, if the seed is in your hand, if I had a seed of of corn in my hand and I held onto it and I really thought, grow into an ear of corn, grow into an ear of corn, come on, grow into an ear of corn, nothing I do with it in my hand will cause it to grow into anything, right? It's not going to do anything. It's not going to produce anything. But if I take that seed and I bury it in the ground and Jesus says, and it dies, it actually brings forth much fruit. You know what Jesus was talking about? He was talking about himself. He was saying, listen, I'm going to die. I'm going to be placed in a tomb. But from my death will come a resurrection, and from my resurrection will come much fruit. Do you know the Bible says those that come to know Christ are considered the first fruits of his glory? And we become followers of Christ not because of obligation, guilt, church tradition. Some of you go to church just because your parents went to church and their parents went to church and you don't really know why you go to church. You just do it because it's Sunday morning and that's what we do, even though you don't really want to be here because you're tired, okay? And you might say, I would never say that. You would say that in your head. You may not say it out loud. We've all thought those thoughts. Man, Jesus is saying, no, 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 listen. Becoming a follower of Christ is based solely in the fact of what he did for us. And Jesus Christ, sinless, spotless, perfect man, perfect lamb, lived a sinless life, his entire human life, died on a sinner's cross. John, in John chapter 19, records more than anyone about the crucifixion. When you study what Jesus went through, he was beaten as a criminal. He was whipped within literally an inch of his life. He was mocked and ridiculed, and the Roman soldiers struck him in the face. This is not any man. This is the living Son of God, God himself, who in the beginning said, let us make man in our image. That God is on his knees before his very creation being beaten His blood is pouring from his face and his brow. They throw a robe on him and a crown of thorns, and they mock him more and say, Hail, King of the Jews. Then he is drugged from that scene, and he's forced to carry a cross to Calvary. Then he's nailed to that cross. He's lifted up for all the world to see, dying a death of shame and ridicule, a a death of, of criminals. How do we know this? Because on both sides was just the worst of the worst. Pilate offered the Jewish people Barabbas or Jesus, a murderer or the one who claims to be God, because he is, and they chose Jesus to be crucified. That's the hatred that they had for Christ. That's the hatred that is possible to have towards your creator in sin and in being lost. And Jesus, the Bible says, and I don't understand it, it says, for the joy that was before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. That means every fist strike, every whip of that whip, every drop of blood that was shed, he took joy in that. 
Not in the moment of suffering, but in the result that would follow. And what's the result? Much fruit, he says. He was taken down from that cross. No one took his life. He gave his life willingly. He chose when he was going to die. It says they came to break his knees. The reason they would do this is because if somebody was taking a little too long to die by crucifixion, they would break your knees, and so then you can't support yourself, and you would suffocate. And they come to do this, and they were actually shocked. They were surprised because he was already dead. They took his body down. They laid him in a tomb. And as we're going to celebrate in just a few weeks, that tomb is empty. He's not in that tomb anymore. He rose again. People will say, well, aren't all religions the same? Isn't Muhammad just like Jesus, just like Buddha, just like Confucius, just like all these other ones? Isn't it all just this? It's the same book over and over again. No. Every world religion, all of them are based in works. From Hinduism to Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, it's all based in what you do. Buddhism, it's karma, right? You just keep living good and more and more karma, better karma. You re- reincarnated something else, something else, something else until you break the cycle and you reach nirvana, their heaven. Islam, it's all about works. Do more good than bad. Only in Christianity is our foundation of our faith based not in what I do for God, but what God did for me, the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, this is the gospel that Jesus died according to the scriptures. He was buried according to the scriptures. He rose again according to the scriptures and he was seen. He was witnessed. And that's the gospel. That's what we're offered, by the way. We're offered eternal life. And how do we receive that? Just by simple faith, believing that I've sinned and violated God's laws and that he came for me and put my faith and trust in his death, burial, resurrection as a covering of my sin, and now I'm set free to live this eternal life. When I leave this world, I don't have to wonder and hope. Maybe I'll get to heaven. Maybe I've been good enough. No, we have a guarantee. The word hope in the Bible is not like, I hope I get a million dollars. The word hope in the Bible is a strong guarantee based in fact. I hope because I know. And so how does that affect our daily life? Because see, here's the thing. We love that. We love the gospel. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't end right there. Go to verse 25. John 12, 25. He talks about his death in the beginning. Verse 25. He that loves his life shall lose it. And he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. Man, what is Jesus talking about here? What is he referring to when he talks about this idea of us now being involved? You see, Jesus talks about his death, burial, and resurrection, and we get really excited because we know that means the gospel, and we should be excited about that. But here we read him talking about our life, us dying. You see, there are, or there is rather a truth we need to take away from this passage. These words of Christ are very clear and very true. He is calling us to live the life that is possible. And it is possible when we hate our life in this world. You want to live as a follower of Christ, the first step is to die to this life. It's to die to this life. The principle here is that as Jesus died to bring life, we must die to live. I want to look at three areas in our daily life which 
we can choose to die to today. The first area we have to choose to die is Jesus showed us we need to choose to die to sin. I have to make a choice that as a follower of Christ, this is not to be saved, but this is because I'm a follower of Christ. Because I'm saved, I'm dying to sin. And this is a daily choice according to Scripture. I can die to sin because I've already been set free from sin by Christ. We must hate sin in our lives. And I know we talked about this last week with our hypocritical sermon and, and how sometimes people get, can live in hypocritical ways. Um, but I want to go a little farther with this because we are all prone to sin. We are all prone to sin. There is no one in this room that is above sinning. If you think you are, I warn you, you probably already have or you will soon. There is no one perfect. We are not perfect. We must always be on guard against sin because the minute we think we're strong enough, we're good enough, we're, we got this thing beat, man, we're instantly that much more temptable. We must realize we're all prone to sin. This doesn't mean we have to give in to sin, but it means we're prone to sin. In our natural sin nature, we're prone to sin because we are all human but we must acknowledge that, acknowledge that truth, and then grow in our disdain for sin. We must get honest with ourselves and honest with the Lord until we genuinely hate sin as much as God does. We will not be free from our bondages. We will continue to toy around with it, allowing it to grow and ultimately consume us. Until we hate sin as much as God does. Not, we don't just want to hate the consequence of sin. So here's the thing. All of us hate the consequences of sin. All of us hate the destruction it causes and the, the breakdown in, in relationships and all these things. But when we hate sin, we hate the actual thing of sin, man, we are set free from that. But as long as we toy around with it, we kind of give it levels and degrees and we think it's not that big of a deal, it will have more and more of a foothold in our lives. And sooner or later, it will consume us. Our faith is renewed and reinvigorated when we flee youthful lusts, as Paul says, and follow after the things of God. And I'm not telling you this as a pastor that, again, has it all figured out, because I don't. I am just as prone to sin as you are. I am not any better than you. I am not any holier than you. I mean, maybe some of you, but I mean, I don't know. That's up for a debate, I guess. We're all human beings. We're all on equal footing. Why? Because the cross is on equal footing. We all equally needed grace. And we need grace every day. So we can't start getting this mindset that because someone sins differently than you, that you're better than them. We can't start thinking, well, yeah, I mean, I've messed up, but I've never done and fill in the blank with the sin that you find the most disgusting. Because next thing you know, we're pointing fingers. Well, I'm not better than anyone, but I'm better than them. <laughs> I've never done that. Well, who says that is any worse than this? Man, the Bible is clear. Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 6, Romans 3. For all have sinned, all have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. Separation from God for all eternity. That's the power of sin. That's the consequence of sin. And until we hate sin as a whole... It's going to continue to just chip away at us and chip away at us. So how do we avoid this? How do we grow in our disdain for sin? I believe the power comes in. We must become continual confessors. Continual confessors. 
all throughout the history of God's people. Those that have seen God move in the most powerful ways for his glory are those that are continually confessing their weakness, their struggles, their sin. We do not confess unto salvation that is sure and done in Christ. You only confess unto salvation once, then you're saved. But as 1 John 1, 9 says, we confess our sins continually. 1 John 1, 9, people say, well, that's a salvation verse. That's actually written to the church. That was written to believers already in Christ. He's saying, no, no, as a believer, you need to continually make sure you're living in a way that honors him. Not to keep your salvation or to merit his love, but because as a follower of Christ, we want to make sure that we're open and communicating with him and so the intimacy between us and him is full and strong. Why? So we can do what he's calling us to do. You know, one of the greatest consequences of sin in our lives is it distracts from what God has for you. And I'm not talking about a million dollars. I'm not talking about health and wealth and this prosperity gospel junk. I'm talking about living a life for his glory, making disciples, baptizing new believers, showing people what it is to be a follower of Christ, glorifying him in all that we say and do. That's what God has for you. And from that comes love, joy, peace, all the fruit of the Spirit. But if we allow sin to pick away at us and kind of take up room in our hearts and in our minds, we're not giving full attention to the things of God. We're robbing ourselves. We're not really glorifying him as we could. And I know this is a hard topic, and I know it doesn't sound all flowery. When I was looking at graphics for that, I found the flower one, and I thought, I told Sandra, I said, I like this one because it's a tough message, but people will see that and think, oh, spring, I feel better, okay? So if you feel a little weight right now, just look at the flower. I feel better now, okay? I see a flower, okay? As we understand this, we must become continual confessors. Something took place in 1907 in Pyong, South Korea, that literally changed the nation and is affecting change today. In 1907, there was what's called the Pyong, uh, Pyong Revival. Pyong Revival. And what this was is in, in Korea, many of you know this, that South Korea is a very strong Christian nation. South Korea is, the, uh, is second in sending out missionaries only to the United States. The United States is number one as far as a nation that sends out missionaries into the world. South Korea is second, which is crazy because their population makes up or is made up of like Texas and Florida for us. Their whole nation could fit in Texas and Florida, but they're second to us in sending out missionaries. That's a crazy thought. But I got to tell you, just a little over 100 years ago, Korea wasn't even a Christian. There was very little or any, if any, biblical Christianity in, South, in Korea just a little over 100 years ago. You see, Catholicism came to Korea, but it was very works-based and laid in that way. So it wasn't true biblical Christianity. But in the 1800s, their missionaries began to try to go into Korea. It was still technically a closed nation. So their story, and it's one missionary, was in a boat trying to row to the shore full of Bibles. His boat was full of Bibles. And he's trying to row into the nation, and they started attacking him from the shore. And he's throwing the Bibles overboard, just preaching, Jesus, 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 trying to get the Bibles out of the boat. He got to the shore, and they killed him. This is in 1880s, somewhere in there. But after a few years, some missionaries began to get footholds in Korea, and the gospel began to get preached. And by 1907, there was this large gathering of Christians, and 
but it was mostly church leaders that had gotten together and they were in this meeting place. And, and as the spirit is moving and as the worship is going on, people began to be convicted of their own sin. And the story goes that in 1907, in this group, this large gathering, all these pastors and church leaders start standing up. And they start confessing their sin to everyone. I mean, they're just weeping and crying out for mercy and repentance. They're saying, God, forgive us. God, this is where I failed you. God, this is where I failed you. And another person, another pastor, another church leader, another Christian stands up and says, God, I am broken in sin. Here, I need your forgiveness. And just all across the room, just this cry, just this weeping of people, just crying out to God, saying, God, we need your forgiveness. We are repenting of all of this, and we're pouring it out before you. They were confessing all of their sin. And it wasn't provoked by any call. It wasn't no one that said, okay, now who's first? Someone stand and tell us your sin. It was just a moving of God, and people were just broken. And do you know that that movement, that night, is credited with the expanse of Christianity in that nation to now? There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Christians in South Korea. Do you know that there's I was listening to this uh, individual speak. He was there on a missions experience there. And, and he, he was talking with this pastor that had been there multiple times. And he said, what is with these people? I've never met Christians that are just passionate for Jesus Christ. And he said, well, I can tell you a story that I experienced. And he said he was in his hotel room and he was sleeping. And about 4 a.m., there's a stadium, like not too far from the hotel where this guy was staying. And in the stadium, he just hears this cheering and this uproar and this just loud commotion at 4 a.m. He's thinking, what is with these people? Who plays sports at 4 a.m.? So he goes down the next morning. He, it just went on seemingly forever. And he went down to the desk at like, you know, 6.37 in the morning and said, listen, I just got to know what was going on at the stadium. I mean, I know people take their sports seriously, but I mean, what was that about? He said, oh, that wasn't a sporting event. He said, well, what was that? He said, that was one of the Christian prayer services. The stadium was full of people just praying and just singing and celebrating and worshiping. And it just went on all the... This one guy I was, telling, I was listening to, he said that when he was there, they would have all-night prayer meetings, sometimes a couple times a month, all-night prayer meetings. I can tell you, me, as a pastor of many years now, I have never been a part of a legitimate all-night prayer meeting. I've been a part of prayer gatherings. I've been a part of prayer days. But to literally pray for the entire night, I have never been a ga- part of a gathering like that. Maybe individually, maybe in college with a couple people for a few hours here or there. But I thought about it. I thought, man, what? Why is God moving so much in this nation of South Korea? Maybe it's because it's laid on the foundation of repentance before God. It's laid on the foundation of confession before God. It's laid on the foundation of his grace healing them and bringing them salvation. Maybe it's not based in how well the pastor preaches or how good the music is or how comfortable the chairs are or how easy the drive is. Maybe it's based in Jesus Christ and him alone. And therefore, people are just pouring out and saying, God, we need you. And I'm going to tell you guys, if we don't become and don't continue to be not out of fear of losing our salvation or in a legalistic way of trying to please God, but in a way of just, God, I want to know you more. God, I want to know you more. And God, I'm going to confess this because this is in my way. 
And I almost hesitated even telling you guys that story because here's what happens. We start thinking, well, I need to do that. And it's not really a moving of God. It's more provoked by the story. And now, okay, fine, I'll do that. And we just kind of, we react emotionally. No, 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 no. It's not about emotion. It's about truth. And God's word says that we need to be continually confessing unto him. Romans 6 is clear. Mark it down, study it out. I encourage you to read Romans 6. Romans 6 is clear that we are dead to sin in Christ. We are dead to sin in Christ, the Bible says. So when we choose to sin, we don't need to fear. We don't need to feel guilt and shame to the point of never going back to church or never talking to God. When we give in to sin, when we resurrect that sin in our lives, we just need to confess. We just confess, God, I am sorry. Would you forgive me of that? Not unto salvation, but unto the restoration of fellowship so that I can know you more. We don't fear God when we sin. We should be fearful if we don't know him. But if you know him as your loving heavenly father, you have an advocate with your father, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your defense. And we're not going to God going, God, I can't talk to you about this. God, I'm so afraid of what you're going to think about this. No, we go in a gracious entrance and say, God, I know that you know and I'm sorry. And we just own it. And we just repent of it. And we turn from it. And we fear God as far as revering him and honoring him because he is holy and he is worthy. But that even draws us closer to him because he sent his son to cover our sin because we couldn't go into his presence without Jesus Christ. So in Christ, we confess, if you are here and you don't know Christ, then I want to encourage you, stop picking out this one sin or that one sin. If you don't know Christ, it's all sin. And you need to just know him. Stop trying to make yourself better and change your behavior. Change your heart by going to Christ and saying, God, I need you. Would you change me on the inside? And see the change that can take place. So we die to sin quickly. We die to ourselves. We die to ourselves. We are not the most important thing in our life. We are not, you are not the most important thing in your life. I am not the most important thing in my life. I want our church to be, and I believe our church can be, a gathering of believers who do not live for themselves, but live for Christ. That's the call of Christianity, to not live for ourselves, but to live for Christ. Why? Again, because he gave his life for us to live. We can lay down our lives and live for his glory in his praise. Galatians 2 and verse 20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, this life, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We must choose to die to self. That completely flies in the face of American culture that tries to make you the most important part of your life and what you want and what you need and what you desire. It's all about us. It's all about you. We see this in so many ways in advertising, in, in how people talk. It's all about us. It's all about what we get out of it. It's all about what we want from it. But the key is to realize that our life is about him if we know him as our savior. So how do we do this? How do we die to ourselves? How do we change our actual thinking about our lives? We must allow our spiritual taste buds to change. We must allow our spiritual taste buds to change. When we die to self, it does not matter if it interests us or not. 
It doesn't matter if it pleases me or not. People will say things like, well, I don't really know if I want to do that for God because I'm not really interested in that. It doesn't really please me. It doesn't really make me happy. That's kind of irrelevant because we're not living for us. We're living for him. Now, I do believe that God may give you a desire to do what he ends up calling you to do. If you love kids, he may lead you into working with kids' ministry. If you uh, want to be a missionary, he may give you just this ability to be able to kind of pick up and go. I met people like this. They just seem to never have any roots. You know what I mean? They can just move, and it's no big deal. Some of you, you've lived in the same house your whole life. And if I said move, you would literally have a heart attack because you can't leave that house because you just love that consistency. Some of you love change. You drive your spouse crazy when you're constantly changing the layout of the living room or the paint color, okay? I think we should paint again. Literally, it just dried. Like, why are we painting again? Well, I know, but I want to go with more of a hue of purplish-greenish. I don't know what color color it is, but anyway. Some of us love change. And so you know what? There's somebody I knew from college. She was this way. She just was a military family. She could just pick up and go, no problem. She got in trouble one time because she was 18, lived in St. Louis, just decided on a whim to go with her friends to Chicago for two days, called her parents from Chicago, and said, just wanted to let you know where I was. And by the way, that was on Saturday afternoon. And her parents were cool with it because they just knew that's how she is. They trusted her enough. She's good. Well, sure enough, she ends up getting married, marries a guy who's very similar, very easy to just get up and go, and now they're missionaries. Because for them, it's nothing to go to a field for a year, two years, three years, and God say, go over here. Okay, and we'll just disconnect and go. Some of us can't do that. So I do believe God gives us those things. He equips us with those things. But sometimes how we define that isn't equipping. We use words like happy. It doesn't really make me happy to go to church all the time. I would be much more happy staying in bed. Right? I don't really, it doesn't make me, I don't really, I'm not really interested in teaching kids. You know, what's interesting to me is a lot of people don't even know what God is calling them into until they start doing something. You start working with the kids and you go, wow, I never knew I would like something like this. And now all of a sudden, you start looking forward to it. We did a series for the students years ago called Seriously, Just Do Something. That was the whole series. Seriously, just do something. Because so many people go, I just, I don't know what to do. I'm praying for leading. I believe that. Keep praying. But nowhere is it an inactive waiting. It's an active waiting. I'm going to keep pursuing God as I'm waiting. So how do we die to ourselves? We must allow our spiritual taste buds to change. We must desire the things that God desires for us because it is the very things we need. Catch that now. I must desire the things that God desires for me. So he needs to change my taste buds, my interests. I must desire the things that God desires for me because those things are exactly what I need. I need those things to do what God is calling me to do, to be who God has created me to be. And without those things, I can never see the fullness of that. An example that came to my mind in thinking about this story from South Korea is the discipline of prayer as a follower of Christ. The perception is that prayer is boring. This is the perception among even Christians and those that attend church. Prayer is boring. So we do not do it, or we do not do it for long, because, well, it's boring. I need something more engaging. I'm just going to be honest with you guys. I've never pulled a punch. I'm not going to start now. When we started trying to transition our Wednesday night to more prayer, and I I need to do a better job at this, because lately I've been getting to like 8 o'clock, and we're just then taking prayer requests, praying for 10 minutes or so, and being done. 
Uh, we used to end at like 7.45 and then spend a good half hour in prayer. want to get back to that. But I'm just going to be honest. I mean, and it's not picking anybody, and I'm not going to name names or whatever. It doesn't really matter. It's just the principle of what I see in Christianity as a whole, not just North Goodland. I have plenty of pastor friends, and I've talked to them about this, and they've said, we've tried a prayer meeting. We've tried it, and it just doesn't work. Just, they're not interested. So it's not just a North Goodland problem. It's a church problem in America. I had people that came to me and said, I could not be a part of a prayer meeting. It's just too boring and slow. That's not a knock against them. That's just saying what? That's the temperature of our church in, in America. I just, I couldn't pray for a half hour. I don't know what I would think about. I wouldn't know what to pray about. So that shows me then that maybe we need to encourage people to, to broaden those horizons and think, how can I pray in a more effective way? And I know for some of us, it is difficult to pray and not get distracted, but it's a discipline. It's like anything else. We have to keep working at it. When my son said, I don't really feel like it doesn't interest me to brush my teeth every day, I didn't say, that's fine, child. Do whatever interests you. <laughs> Many a morning, my son Josiah, I don't want to go to school today. School does not interest me. No, we're going to school because I know this is what you need. You don't understand it, but this is what you need. I don't really feel like going to church today. I don't feel like reading the Bible today. I just, it doesn't really interest me, okay? You do it because it's what you need. Now, and there's a mindset in Christianity. Well, you shouldn't just push through. You shouldn't just tough it out. You should, you should want to study God's word. Yes, you should. But being human beings, that's not perfect. There are going to be mornings that you're through your devotion, and you're like, I don't really feel like doing my devotion. That's where truth triumphs feeling. It's irrelevant. Do the devotion. Why? Not because, oh, I feel like doing it. Because it's what you need. I need this book. I need this word. I need this God to help me not screw my life up. Not because I feel like it. Because I need it. Husbands, love your wives. Not because you feel like it. You're not always going to feel like it. Wives, love your husbands. You're not... You're not going to feel like it, okay? You do it. Why? It's because it's what they need. It's what you need. Man, it's, I, don't, I don't know what happened in our thinking. It's all of a sudden, it's like, well, God, I understand your word says this, but I don't really feel like it. Man, we need to change our taste buds. We need to say, no, God, I want to hunger after the things you hunger after. And if I don't feel like it, change my feelings. Change my thinking. I want to think like you think. I know I can never think fully like you think, Lord, because your thoughts are so much above mine. But I don't want to think like you. I want to live the life you have for me. We allow God to change our spiritual taste buds. He transforms you and I to long for the things that he has for us. Lastly and quickly, we die to self. We choose to die to self, rather. We choose to die to sin. And number three, we choose to die to this world. What does that mean? Well, we die to the ways of this world. This does not mean we hate our families, we hate our friends, we hate our careers. Those are blessings that God has given us, and we appreciate them, we enjoy them, we enjoy the world that he's given us as far as creation. I know today, not so great, okay, but we can still see the potential of spring at some point coming through. We can enjoy this life and that aspect of it. So what does Jesus mean when he says, die to this world. Well, we must choose to die to the priorities, the pursuits, the love of possessions, and the passions of this world. We choose to die to the priorities, the pursuits, 
the love of possessions, and the passions of this world. Jesus said it this way, hates his life in this world, meaning you're in the world, but you gotta, you got to be on guard not to be drifted into these things, to be consumed by the things the world is consumed with. We are tempted truly by false pleasures in this world. It's all around us. Everywhere you look, there's a temptation of false pleasure. Spend your money on this. Go into debt for that. Buy this. Cheat on this. I mean, you deserve it anyway because what makes you happy is what matters. Now, we got to be so careful. We are aware of the false pleasures of this world, which meets, leads me to think, then what are the true pleasures that God has given us? Realize that pleasure itself comes from God. Amen? Amen. Pleasure itself comes from God. And when we are focused on him, the joy and peace are beyond understanding. You know the greatest pleasure you can have, the greatest joy you can have? I'm going to go there real quick. I wasn't going to, but it just kind of came to my mind. Romans chapter 5. And I hope I'm thinking of the right reference. But Romans chapter 5. Yes. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. If this isn't bringing you joy and pleasure, I don't know what will. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 says this, Therefore, being justified by faith. And praise God that he has allowed us to believe in him and his revealed word to us. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, by whom also we have access by faith into his grace, wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Man, why is that possible? Why do we have all this access? Why have I been justified by faith, have peace with God? Why have I access by faith into his grace and to stand strong and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God? Because of Jesus Christ, period. I did nothing to earn it. He offers it to me freely. I receive it, and now I'm entered and ushered in. And that brings the truest joy and the truest pleasure. You know why? Because it can never be taken away. You can never lose that. And I don't know of any other greater pleasure than a pleasure that is something you can never lose. Man, anything else in this world, you take pleasure in your career, you could lose that tomorrow. You take pleasure in your possessions, you could lose those tomorrow. Not to be morbid, but it's the reality. We take pleasure in our children and in our families, and we should. But their lives aren't eternal as far as physically. They, we may lose them. And so, uh, yes, we take joy and pleasure in those things to a degree. But, man, the true pleasure, the true joy, the true peace that goes beyond understanding is when we realize what we have available to us in Jesus Christ. It is often interesting to me that God will encourage his people and people throughout all of Scripture, to avoid sin and worldly pleasures, those things that would lead us astray and destroy us, not good things, but bad things. That is, God is often encouraging his people to avoid sin and worldly pleasures by comparing it with what he offers them by faith. Do you know often God will say things like, why did you leave me? Look what I did for you. Why are you trusting in that? Look what I have for you. Why are you running to that? Look what's available in me. It's almost as though he's saying, I'm not just going to tell you not to do these things. I'm showing you why what I have for you is so much better. And so he's often comparing those things. And rather than say so much, don't do, don't do, don't do, he's saying, but wouldn't you rather have this? Man, Jeremiah, 
He says, what have I done that you would run from me to broken cisterns? Water containers that are actually broken. You're not even collecting water. I've given you all of this. I've led you out of slavery. I've led you out of captivity. Look what I've done for you. Why would you leave me? It's the cry of a brokenhearted God who says, I don't understand why you would leave me. Now, he does understand, but his plea to us is, what I offered you was good. I mean, I didn't offer you bad things. I offered you good things. And you might say, well, you know what, pastor, I just don't feel like I'm in a good place in my life, and I don't think God gives me good things because I see a lot of negative things going on around me. God allows negative things into our life to draw us to him so that we might grow in trusting him and not in the things around us. And I know it's difficult when you're in the season, but I want to encourage you to trust in him no matter where you find yourself. He offers true pleasure. C.S. Lewis said it so well when he said this. We are far too satisfied with the pleasures of this world. What a genius author C.S. Lewis was. We are far too satisfied with the pleasures of this world when greater pleasure is available. He is speaking of what is available to the Christian through Christ. We are far too satisfied. Man, it's, it's, it's like living your whole life eating the crumbs that fall off the table and never realizing there's a feast on the table. And you think you're, I mean, you're satisfied. It's giving you enough to get by, but you're not really enjoying the fullness of the meal. And Jesus Christ is saying, stop living on the crumbs. Come, sit, enjoy, dine with me. Watch me fill you in ways that you can't even imagine. If we desire to live the, God, live the life that God has for us, it starts with believing that Christ died for our sin and put faith and trust in his gospel, which brings us everlasting life. In this life as a follower of Christ, we must, by grace, die to sin, die to self, and die to the world's ways of living. As we grow in these areas, we will experience God's presence as never before in our lives, and our disdain for sin will grow, and our desire for him and his pleasures will grow as well. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right there where you are. We're going to have a time of invitation. The band's going to come in just a moment. They can go ahead and start coming, and we're going to give a time of prayer. And in the front here, there'll be a couple people that want to pray with you if you want to pray with someone. But the invitation is simple this morning as you bow your heads right there where you are. If you know Christ, have you made a choice to die to sin, to die to self, and to die to the ways of this world? If you know that there's a sin in your life that is a battle, it's a roller coaster, your victory, then you lose. You have victory, and then you lose. Maybe you want to come and say, Lord, give me the strength to put that thing to bed, to put it to rest, and to walk and enjoy you Father, whatever it is you want to do this morning, would you just lead, guide, and direct in all these things? Help us to trust in you, Lord. My words are fleeting. My mind is simple. I'm a finite thinker. I cannot, I cannot convey the fullness of what you want to do today, but I'm so thankful, Holy Spirit, that you are leading, guiding, directing, and that you have already convicted in this room of what needs to happen moving forward. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in all that is said and done. I pray that you would draw those that need to be saved. I pray that they would trust in you and believe that you gave your life for them. But for the one that knows you, may they repent of these things. May we make the choice as a church to be a continual confessor to you first and foremost, and then maybe to somebody that we trust spiritually that can help us in this walk. Father, you be glorified now. This is all about you.
You saved us. You loved us. You came to us. We did nothing to earn it. So we ask that you would just show your, your word to us in a way of illumination, open our minds, that we would follow. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? However God is speaking, would you respond? If you want to come and pray, there are those in the front that would love to pray with you. Would you come and just follow him this morning?